Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor of a church in Crawley in West Sussex in England called Maidenbower Baptist Church, and it's my privilege to be your host as we work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This week we're reading 927 to 933, and the next week 934 to 940. This week's featured sermon, one we choose as a representative of the the output of Spurgeon as a preacher, is Martha and Mary. It's number 927. Then next week is the winnowing fan, number 940. So if you're joining us next week and you'd like to read ahead, go to sermon 940. If you're not sure where to find it, then you can always go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get a brief introduction to the sermon and a link so you can read it online. But let's dive straight into this week's sermon. Martha and Mary preached on the Lord's Day morning of the 24th of April 1870 at the Tabernacle in Newington. The text is Luke 10, 38-42. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. It is not an easy thing to maintain the balance of our spiritual life, is the preacher's opening statement. No man can be spiritually healthy who does not meditate and commune. No man, on the other hand, is as he should be unless he is active and diligent in holy service. The importance of those opening statements will be seen as we understand that Spurgeon isn't just going to draw a crass comparison between busy Martha and contemplative Mary. He wants us to understand that activity, as well as communion with Christ, are both significant in the, in the spiritual life. We must not be so active as to neglect communion, nor so contemplative as to become unpractical. And so we need to understand here how Spurgeon is going to be approaching this. The Lord Jesus had already said to his disciples that they should consider themselves as debtors to the grace which reveals unto babes the mysteries of God and not to allow their new position as workers to make them forget that they were the chosen of God and therefore debtors to his grace. And now he's emphasizing the same thing. And and Spurgeon, as we'll see, is concerned then about the kind of spirit that he perceives in the church of his day. He says, I think it's altogether wrong to treat Martha as some have done, as if she had no love for good things and was nothing better than a mere worldling. He recognises that her activity shows her a most estimable and earnest woman, a true believer, an ardent follower of Jesus, whose joy it was to entertain, entertain her Lord at the house of which she was the mistress. But Mary looked upon the occasion from another point of view. So Martha was serving Christ but so also was Mary. Martha meant to honour Christ, and so too did Mary. They both agreed in their design, they differed in their way of carrying it out, 
And while Martha's service is not censured, only her being cumbered comes under the censure, her being burdened and troubled, yet Mary is expressly commended as having chosen the good part, and therefore we do Martha no injustice if we show wherein she came short and wherein Mary excelled. So Spurgeon's really taking time here in his introduction to set up the nature of his comparison, that it's not a flat negative as opposed to a flat positive, but that we do need to understand how these two different attitudes or dispositions contrast with each other and the the weaknesses especially of what he calls the Martha spirit as opposed to the Mary spirit. So he tells us how he's going to proceed, as he often does. Our first observation will be this, that the Martha spirit is very prevalent in the church of God just now. In the second place, that that Martha spirit very much injures true service. And in the third place, that the Mary spirit is the source of the noblest form of consecration. And you're thinking, well, what's he trying to say? What's he aiming at? He will explain as he goes. The Martha spirit then is very prevalent in the church at this period. Prevalent in some quarters to a mischievous degree and among us all to a perilous extent. What do we mean when we say this? First of all, that there is a considerable tendency among Christian people in serving Christ to aim at making a fair show in the flesh. Martha wanted to give our Lord a right worthy entertainment and she's commendable. There's the positive. So also among professing Christians, there's a present desire to give to the cause of Christ, for example, buildings notable for their architecture and building. Architecture and beauty. We have to do something that's impressive. We've got to have uh, stunning chapels. We've got to have uh, tasteful music and uh, impressive worship. We're exhorted not to be barely decent, but to be sublime and beautiful. Our public worship, it is thought, should be impressive, if not imposing. Care should be taken that the music should be chaste, the singing conform to the best rules of the art, and the preaching eloquent and attractive. Now, we might not have precisely the same inclinations in our day, but the same spirit is present, that things have to be impressive to the eyes of mankind. And brothers, says Spurgeon, there's something better to be studied than the outward, for though this may be aimed at with a single eye to God's glory, and we judge no man, yet we fear the tendency is to imagine that mere externals are precious in the master's sight. So he says funds and encouraging accounts and well-arranged machineries are well if they exist as the outgrowth of fervent love, but if they are the end-all and the be-all, you miss the mark. In other words, where there's fervent love, it may very well work itself out in, in a, a, an income that is commendable and in a, a management of a process that is effective. But Jesus would be better pleased with a grain of love than a heap of ostentatious service. Then he goes on that the Martha spirit shows itself in the censuring of those persons who are careful about Christ's word, who stand up for the doctrines of the gospel, who desire to maintain the ordinances as they were delivered unto them, and who are scrupulous and thoughtful and careful concerning the truth as it is in Jesus. Now, what Spurgeon means here is that some people will denounce those who are doctrinally precise as unpractical, 
that we don't need to deal with theological questions. It's getting in the way of our ministry. Go in for ragged schools, certainly. Reclaim the Arabs of the street. He means they're the, the, the wanderers of the street. He's not uh, not making a sort of a ethnic point there. He's talking about those who wander on the street. By all manner of means, pass a compulsory education bill, certainly. Soup kitchens, free dinners, all excellent. We can all join in these, but never mention creeds and doctrines. Why, man, you cannot be aware of the enlightenment of our times. So there's the building up of mere activism and the playing down of doctrinal accuracy. Mary, treasuring up every word of Christ, Mary, counting each syllable a pearl, is reckoned to be unpractical, if not altogether idle. That spirit, I fear, is growing in these times and needs to be checked. For after all, there is truth and there is error, and charitable talk cannot alter the fact. To know and to love the gospel is no mean thing. Obedience to Jesus and anxiety to learn his will so as to please him in all things are not secondary matters. Contemplation, worship and growth in grace are not unimportant. I trust we shall not give way to the spirit, he says, which despises our Lord's teaching. For if we do, in prizing the fruit and despising the root, we shall lose the fruit and the root too. In forgetting the great wellspring of holy activity, namely personal piety, we shall miss the streams also. Then the Martha spirit crops up again in our reckoning so many things necessary, in, uh, if you like, front-loading or, or demanding that there be certain things that go with the gospel. So he uses as an, as an example, I believe an educated ministry to be desirable, but nonetheless do I deplore the spirit which considers it to be essential. You must not, according to the talk of some, allow these earnest young people to set about preaching, and your converted colliers and fiddlers shall be stopped at once. The Holy Ghost has in all ages worked by men of his own choosing, but some churches would not let him if he could help it. Their pulpits are closed against the most holy and useful preachers if they have not those many things with which the church nowadays cumbers her ministers and herself. So the idea is that they're, again, they're demanding of of here ministers or of whatever else it may be, the that something else be added to simplicity and purity. So how can you save souls without a committee? How can London be evangelised till you have raised at least a million of money? Can you hope to see men converted without an annual meeting in Exeter Hall? You must have a secretary. There's no moving an inch till he is elected. And know you not that without a committee you can do nothing. All these and a thousand things which time fails me to mention are now deemed to be needful for the service of Jesus until a true-hearted soul who could do much for his Lord scarcely dares to move till he's put on the Saul's armour of human patronage. So there's this... this I, I actually wonder myself if there's a almost a desire to be seen to be doing something and we've mistaken activity for progress. And so we're we're loading up the the externals and the apparent and the seemingly functional on top of the genuinely fruitful. 
Oh, for apostolical simplicity, he says, going everywhere, preaching the word and consecrating the labor of every believer to soul winning. To bring us back to first principles, one thing is needful, and if by sitting at Jesus' feet we can find that one thing, it will stand us in better stead than all the thousand things which custom now demands. To catch the spirit of Christ, to be filled with himself, this will equip us for godly labor as nothing else ever can. So you think of what some people say is necessary to plant a church. Well, you need this massive group of people and you need this much money and you need this particular building and you need this website and you need uh, this kind of ministry team. Spurgeon, I think, would say, just get on with the job. And then he talks about the satisfaction which many feel with mere activity. We've already hinted at this. To have done so much preaching or so much Sunday school teaching, to have distributed so many tracts, to have made so many calls by our missionaries, all this seems to be looked at as end rather than means. If there be so much effort put forth, so much work done, is it not enough? Our reply is, it is not enough. It is nothing without the divine blessing. Brothers, where mere work is prized and the inner life forgotten, prayer comes to be at a discount. The committee is attended, but the devotional meeting forsaken. The gathering together for supplication is counted little compared with the collecting of subscriptions. It's this overemphasis on the merely external, even perhaps the carnal, and this underplaying of the spiritual, the communion with God. It will be an evil day for us when we trust in the willing and the running, he says, and practically attempt to do without the Holy Spirit. So this throws the acceptance of our work into the shade. The Martha spirit says, if the work is done, is that not all? Is that everything? That's good enough. The Mary spirit asks whether Jesus is well pleased or no. All must be done in his name and by his spirit or nothing is done. Restless service, which sits not at his feet, is but the clattering of a mill which turns without grinding corn, an elaborate method of doing nothing. Spurgeon says, I do not want less activity. How earnestly do I press you to it almost every Sabbath day? But I do pray that we may feel that all our strength lies in God and that we can only be strong as we are accepted of Christ and only can be accepted in Christ as we wait upon him in prayer, trust him and live upon him. So you can rise up early and sit up late. You can eat the bread of sorrows, but unless you trust in the Lord your God, you will not prosper. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Those who wait upon the Lord renew that strength. Without Christ, you can do nothing. He's already now pressing in these applications. You see how he's weaving it in together. And then he says again that Martha's spirit is predominant in the evident respect which is paid to the manifest and the small regard given to the secret. Again, he emphasizes he's not dismissing the activity in itself. All regenerated persons ought to be workers for God and with God. But, here's the important qualification, let the working never swamp the believing. Never let the servant be more prominent than the son. Never because you conduct a class or chief man at a village station. Never forget that you are a sinner saved by grace and have need still to be looking to the crucified and finding all your life in him. You lose your strength as a worker if you forget your dependence as a believer. And so he urges his hearers, My brother, it may be you will undertake so much service that your time will be occupied and you will have no space for prayer and reading the word. 
that half hour in the morning for prayer will be cut short and the time allotted for communion with God in the evening gradually entrenched upon by this engagement and this other occupation. And when this is the case, I tremble for you. Are you so busy for God, he's really asking, that you don't have time with God? You're doing your soul serious mischief if you put the whole of your strength into that part of your life which is visible to men and forget that portion of your life which is secret between you and your God. To gather all up in one, this is what he often does at the end of his points, this big sum, I fear there is a great deal among us of religious activity of a very inferior sort. It concerns itself with the external of service, It worries itself with merely human efforts and it attempts in its own strength to achieve divine results. The real working which God will accept is that which goes hand in hand with a patient waiting upon Christ, with heart searching, with supplication, with communion, with a childlike dependence upon Jesus, with a firm adhesion to his truth, with an intense love to his person and an abiding in him at all seasons. May we have more of such things. Martha's spirit, though excellent in itself so far as it goes, he's not dismissing the activity in itself, must not overshadow Mary's quiet, deep-seated piety or evil will come of it. So here again is that desire to hold these things in their proper place. Where Martha is too busy to commune, she actually loses the excellence of her activity. And so, says Spurgeon, that spirit injures true service because it brings the least welcome offering to Christ. All that you can give to Christ in any shape or form will not be so dear to him as the offering of your fervent love, the clinging of your humble faith, the reverence of your adoring souls. Do not, I pray you, neglect the spiritual for the sake of the external, or else you will be throwing away gold to gather to yourself iron. You'll be pulling down the palaces of marble that you may build for yourselves hovels of clay. Then Martha's spirit also tends to bring self too much to remembrance. Bear in mind, he's now using this Martha spirit to draw attention to these flaws. He's not saying, oh, this is Martha. He's saying, watch out for this. We want our work to show well as our work. We like those who see it to commend it. And if none commend it, we feel that we're hardly done by and are left to work alone. Now, to the extent to which I think of myself in my service, I spoil it. Self must sink and Christ be all in all. John the Baptist's saying must be our motto. He must increase, I must decrease. For Jesus' shoe latchet we are not worthy to unloose. Too much work and too little fellowship will always bring self into prominence. Self must be prayed down and fellowship with Jesus must keep it down. Then Martha seemed to imagine that what she was doing was needful for Christ. And we're all too apt to think that Jesus wants our work and that he cannot do without us. The preacher inquires what would become of the church if he were removed. The deacon is suspicious that if he were taken away, there would be a great gap left in the executive of the church. The teacher of a class feels that those children would never be converted. Christ would miss of the travail of his soul if not for him. Ah, but a fly on St. Paul's Cathedral might as well imagine that all the traffic at his feet was regulated by his presence and would cease should he remove. And so we we tend then to put ourselves at the centre We spoil our service when we overestimate its importance, for this leads us into loftiness and pride. 
It is the humble worker who wins the day. God accepts the man who feels his nothingness and out of the depths cries to him. But the great ones he will put down from their seats and send the rich ones empty away. Activity then, if not balanced by devotion, tends to puff us up and so to prevent acceptance with God. Then again, Martha fell into unbelieving vexation. She got annoyed. And and we can do the same thing. We can start shooting down others because they're not active in the way that we think they ought to be. We must have that Sunday school excellently conducted. That morning prayer meeting must be improved. That Bible class must be revived. That morning sermon must be a telling one and so on. And he confesses, the preacher here speaks of himself. And I, and I think most preachers would. We get frustrated and disappointed with shabbiness and shoddiness and carelessness and thoughtlessness and laziness. He sometimes feels, says Spurgeon, that there's too much responsibility laid upon his shoulders. He's apt to review his great field of labour, to grow desponding then in spirit. But when the preacher confessed that he spoke of himself, he only did so because he represents his fellow workers, and you also grow faint and doubtful. Alas, in such a case, the enjoyment of service evaporates, the fretfulness which pines over details spoils the whole, and the worker becomes a mere drudge and scullion instead of an angel who does God's commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Instead of glowing and burning like seraphs, our chariot wheels are taken off by our anxiety and we drag heavily. Faith it is that it secures acceptance, but when unbelief comes in, the work falls flat to the ground. And then he says, then the voluntary principle falls into disrepute. I believe, says Spurgeon, that the voluntary principle, and this he means the the, the expectation that people will freely give of their time and their energy and their money for the work of the kingdom, that the voluntary principle is the worst thing in all the world to work where there is no grace. But where there is grace, it is the one principle that God accepts. So, Martha would have Mary made to serve Christ. But Martha's voluntary desire to do much is leading her to think that Mary, if she hasn't got quite the same, should have a sharp word from Christ about it. And so it is with us. We are so willing to contribute to the Lord's work that we wish we had 10,000 times as much to give. Our heart is warm within us and we feel we would make no reserve. And then we're grieved with others because they give so very little. We wish we could compel them to give. And so we would put their cankered money into the same treasury with the bright free will offerings of the saints, as if the Lord would receive such beggarly pittances squeezed out by force in the same manner as he accepts the voluntary gifts of his people. It were wiser if we left those unwilling contributions to rust in the pockets of their owners, for in the long run I believe they do not help the cause, for only that which is given out of a generous spirit and out of a love to Christ will come up accepted before him. So Spurgeon says, you've got to make sure that rather than driving people into mere activity, you're drawing people to serve the Lord Jesus. And it's better not to have their offerings of time and energy and money than it is to, to as it whip them into some kind of, uh, uh, galvanize them into some kind of mere, mere motion rather than heartfelt desire. But then very briefly, the Mary spirit, and this is where he comes to his conclusion. I have to show you 
that this is capable of producing the noblest form of consecration to Christ. His point is that Mary's meditation, Mary's contemplation, is not a mere inactivity in itself, nor will it lead to inactivity, but will actually produce the truest consecration. So, while by contemplation, while meditating upon the Lord Jesus, you are getting purpose strengthened and motive purified, you are rightly using time. When the man becomes intense, when he gets within him principles vital, fervent, energetic, then when the season for work comes, he will work with a power and a result which empty people can never attain, however busy they may be. So Mary was filling up the fountainhead. She was listening and learning. She was feeding, edifying, loving and growing strong. The engine of her soul was getting its steam ready. So as she was listening to the Lord Jesus, and when all was right, her action was prompt and forcible. And so the manner of her action was being refined. Martha's actions were good, but they were commonplace. When Mary would work, they would be of a higher and truer order. She would anoint him in anticipation of his burial. So those who think not, those who meditate not, those who commune not with Christ will do commonplace things very well, but they will never rise to the majesty of a spiritual conception or carry out a heart-suggested work for Christ. So do we do the kind of meditating do we have the kind of communion with Christ that will actually stimulate us to spiritual engagement? And then he says that the sitting of Mary was also creating originality of act. What he means is that when Mary did something, she did something then that was fresh and useful, striking out a spark of light from herself as her own thought and cherishing that spark till it became a flaming act. He says, I would that in the church of God we had many sisters at Jesus' feet who at last would start up under an inspiration and say, I have thought of something that will bring glory to God which the church has not heard of before and this will I put in practice that there may be a fresh gem in my Redeemer's crown. And then this sitting at the Master's feet guaranteed the real spirituality of what she did. Much of the sweetest aroma of a holy work lies in its being thought over and brought out with deliberation. There are works to be done at once and straightway, but there are some other works to be weighed and considered. So it's well for us to wait sometimes, expectantly saying, yes, the set time will come, I shall be able to do the deed, I shall not go down to my grave altogether without having been serviceable, but it is not yet the time not yet the appropriate season, and I'm not quite ready for it myself, but I will add grace to grace and virtue to virtue and add self-denial to self-denial till I am fit to accomplish the one chosen work. And now then, these brief applications with which to close. Three or four things he addresses. Brothers, he says, I believe in our nonconformity. I believe if ever England wanted nonconformists, it's now. But... There is a tendency to make non-conformity become a thing of externals dealing with state and church and politics. And how much are we seeing of that in our day? The political relations of non-conformists, he says, I believe in their value. I would not have a man less earnest upon them. But 
I am always fearful lest we should forget that nonconformity is nothing if it be not spiritual, and that the moment we as dissenters become merely political or formal, it is all over with us. My friends, the progress of the kingdom does not hinge upon the kingdoms of men. The progress of God's work does not lie in our state relations, in our church prominence, in our political connections, but rather out of our communion with God, we go forth being strong and doing exploits. Yes, he says, I pray that nonconformity may always prevail in England, but I earnestly pray that she may stand because she abides near to Christ, holds his truth, prizes his word and lives upon himself. He says the same is true of missions. While the utmost, when shall the utmost ends of the earth behold the salvation of our God? The strength of missions must lie not so much in arrangements, in committees, in monies, in men, as in waiting upon the Christ of God. The waking up in missions needs to begin in our prayer meetings, in our churches, in our personal wrestlings with God for the conversion of the heathen. That's where the main strength lies of the workers that go out to do the deed. The same is true in revivals. People talk about getting up a revival. Of all things, I do believe, he says, that's one of the most detestable of transactions. If you want a revival of religion, it said, you must get Mr. So-and-so to preach. With him, I suppose, is the residue of the spirit. You must adopt these methods. You must work it up in this way. No, no, says Spurgeon. The way to get the revival is to begin at the master's feet. You must go there with Mary and afterwards you may work with Martha. When every Christian's heart is set right by feeding on Christ's word and drinking in Christ's spirit, then will the revival come. So begin with the master and then go outward to his service. But plans of action must be secondary. Don't do it in such a way, says Spurgeon. Don't, don't load it up so almost at the end of it you could step back and say, well, we don't need the Lord Jesus for this because we've got everything lined up in the way that we should have it done. No, go in the strength which Christ supplies. And so too, lastly, if you want to serve God as I trust you do, first be careful of your own souls. Do not begin with learning how to preach or how to teach or do this or that. Get the strength, dear friend, within your own soul. And then even if you do not know how to use it scientifically, still you will do much. The first thing is get the heart warmed. Stir up your manhood. Brace up all your faculties. Get the Christ within you. Ask the everlasting God to come upon you. Get him to inspire you. And then if your methods should not be according to the methods of others, it will not matter. Or if they should, neither will it be of consequence. Having the power, you will accomplish the results. But if you go about to perform the work before you have the strength from on high, you shall utterly fail. Better things we hope of you. God send them. Amen. And I trust you will feel something of the same, that we live in an age and it's true in our churches and, and I feel it true in my own life and labours that we're so much taken up with external activities and what we need is the Christ of God in our souls. There is our joy, there is our strength, there is our hope, there is our true spiritual power. May God grant it to us. And if you come back next week, may you come back with your soul stirred by the truth as it is in Jesus, by the wonders of his redeeming love, by a contemplation of his person, 
that leads to a greater consecration to his work. Thank you, and we hope to see you again next week for Sermon 940 on The Winnowing Fan.